Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. And welcome back. I'm John Fugelsang. It's so good to have you here with us. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. I hope you're keeping your head up and not letting dark times make you dark on the inside. I'm John Fugelstein. Chris Hauselt is our brilliant executive producer. He's running this thing from South Carolina. Thea Harper is our heroic associate producer running this beast, keeping this train on the tracks, holding down the Ford on the home front. That's a hell of a mixed metaphor. From the Brooklyn Bureau, we were supposed to be in Manhattan tonight in the Howard Stern Tower high above Gotham, but uh, a storm front came. As Billy Joel might have said, so we're all doing this thing from home tonight, and what a show we have. I'm so glad you're here for a Monday night. We have a really powerful show. I invite you to just crack open whatever you need to crack open. Get yourself comfortable. If you are listening on the podcast or on demand or on the app the next day, hello. We hope you'll enjoy this one. We're going to go to some heavy ground tonight, but we hope to... uh, Keep it light where we can. There's a lot to cover, and we have a really, really amazing lineup tonight. Um, We booked tonight's guests before we knew what was going to happen this weekend. Before we knew we'd be talking about guns and gun violence, and before we knew we'd be talking about the racist lie that is uh, white replacement theory. Tonight uh, is the return of author, author Mark Fullman who wrote the book Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. He was with us last month, and we found the interview in the book to be so amazing, we begged him to come back. We had no idea it would be a weekend of multiple mass shootings. And because one of the mass shootings was huge, all of the little mass shootings got extra coverage. So we've got a great show planned. And a lot to get to, a lot to cover. We are really happy to have you with us to try to make sense of this ever-evolving, ever-devolving, beautiful, hideous world we all share. And our number is 866-997-GRIT. We have a lot of great guests coming up this week. All five kids in the hall will be here this week. I'm pretty sure Judd Apatow and Kelly Carlin are, Kelly, Kelly are going to come by to talk about Judd's new documentary for HBO about Kelly's dad, the greatest comedian that's ever lived, George Carlin, and uh, a few surprises as well. If you missed... Last Friday's amazing conversation with 85-year-old George Takei. Worry not, you can hear it on the app, on demand, 
or on the John Fuglesang podcast. And all night long, our number is 866-997-GRIT. I really look forward to talking with you now in the words of George Carlin. Let's do a fucking show. I hope you well. I hope you had a good weekend. Over this weekend, of course, uh, a gunman who killed one person and injured five others at a Southern California church was tackled and hogtied by parishioners in what they described as an act of uh, exceptional heroism and bravery. This particular gunman was motivated by hate for Taiwanese people, and the shooting killed Dr. John Cheng, who was only 52 years old. Now, you might not have heard about that shooting. It's hard to keep up with gun violence in America. It's 2022, and they don't always get all the press. In fact, you have to kill a lot of people to get the media to even notice. But just so you know, so far, in 2022, not even halfway through the year yet, we are averaging 10 mass shootings a week. And tonight we're going to talk about Buffalo and the racist, stupid ideas that caused it. They had a study of five years' worth of Tucker Carlson's show by the New York Times a couple weeks ago. I really recommend watching the video they put together. But they found 400 different instances where he who tucks was talking about Democratic politicians and other people seeking to force what he calls demographic change through immigration. That is a polite way of talking about the Great Replacement Theory, which white supremacists love, and it alleges that White folks are being systematically replaced, intentionally replaced, by people of other races through mass immigration. Now, it's stupid, it's racist, and it's a lie. But this is how racism works. This is how racism perpetuates more racism. Simply put, this conspiracy theory says there is a plot to diminish the influence of white people. The people who claim that white replacement theory is real ironically enough, are the same people who keep proving critical race theory is real. Now, (laughs) I want to play you guys a video and read you a quote. Uh, Here is Tucker Carlson. We'll play some of this, if not all. Just a few of the times clipped together in a montage of Tucker dispensing this white supremacist theory that the Democrats have a plot to bring in people who are brown and aren't like you and me so they can take over democracy. I'm laughing because this is one of about 10 stories that I know you've covered um, where the government shows preference to people who have shown absolute contempt for our customs, our laws, Mm. our system itself, and they're being treated better than American citizens. Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you Mm -hmm. use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, mm. with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. More but they obedient. become hysterical because that's, that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Mm. If, if, look, mm. if this was happening in your house, if you were in sixth grade, for example, and without telling you, your, kid, your parents adopted a bunch of new siblings and gave them brand new bikes and let them stay mm. up later and help them with their homework and gave them twice the allowance that they gave you. You would say to your siblings, you know, I think we're being replaced by by kids that our parents love more. And it would be kind of hard to argue against you because look at the evidence. So this matters on a bunch of different levels, but on the most basic level, it's a voting rights question. In a democracy, one person equals one vote. If you change the population, you dilute the political power of the people who live there. So every time they import a new voter, I become disenfranchised as a Mm. current voter. 
So I don't mm. understand why we don't understand this. I mean, everyone wants to make a racial issue out of it. Ooh, the you know white replacement theory. No, no, no. This is a voting rights question. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? The power that I have yeah. as an American guaranteed at birth is one man, one vote, and they're diluting it. No, they're not allowed to do that. Why are we putting up with this? Okay, you get the idea, right? Um, new people earning citizenship means something's being taken away from you. Just like if women get the vote, men lose something. If black folks get the vote, white people lose something. If gay people are allowed to marry, it's going to lead to the breakdown of the family system. Anytime your fellow human beings get more rights, decent people say that's wonderful. Equality is good. We're all God's children. Or if you don't believe in God, we all deserve a shot at this. Douchebags say, hang on, you're getting more rights. That means I'm losing something. Here's the quote. If there's one thing I want you to get from this, it's that white birth rates must change. Every day, the white population becomes fewer in number. To maintain a population, the people must achieve a birth rate that reaches replacement fertility levels. In the Western world, that's about 2.06 births per woman. Those are not the words of Tucker Carlson or any of the other personalities on Fox News. Those are the words of the 18-year-old right-wing white guy who just murdered 12 people, 10 people, I'm sorry, murdered 10 people in Buffalo, New York. I'm not going to say his name tonight. Um... Evil doesn't exist in a vacuum. A lot of different people contributed to the warping of his 18-year-old mind. A lot of folks ignored the warning signs. Some people, some people tried to heed them. Now, b before you get to hear the right-wing media over the next couple of weeks try to whitewash his actions uh, as, as a lone wolf, or he was just a, a young man with, with mental problems, it's mental illness, before you let them do this, this 18-year-old person described himself in his manifesto, his alleged manifesto, as a white nationalist, a fascist, a neo-Nazi, and an anti-Semite. This 18-year-old right-wing white guy drove 200 miles from his town of Conklin, New York, to target a grocery store in a mostly black neighborhood. 11 of the 13 people he shot were black. Now, according to his own manifesto, he allegedly chose to attack Topps Friendly Markets, all the way in Buffalo, 200 miles from where he lived. You know why? Because it was in a majority black zip code within driving distance of where he lived. He researched where was the most concentrated black population of any zip code in upstate New York. And that zip code was 14208. 14208 is 78% black. It is the most heavily populated by African-American zip code in upstate New York per the U.S. Census Bureau's 2020 American Community Survey. And he researched what time this market would be busiest. And this right-wing white guy shot four people outside the grocery store, three of them he killed. When he entered the store, he exchanged fire with the armed security guard, who authorities said was a retired Buffalo police officer. That guard died. He shot eight more people in the store. Six of them died. Here is Joe Biden speaking at a law enforcement ceremony at the U.S. Capitol, offering words on the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, A1. The lone gunman, armed with weapons of war and hate-filled soul, shot and killed 10 innocent people in cold blood at a grocery store on Saturday afternoon. Jill and I, like all of you, pray for the victims and their families and a devastated community. I've been receiving updates from my team in the White House 
that's in close contact with the Justice Department. We're still gathering the facts. While already the Justice Department has stated publicly that it is investigating the matter as a hate crime, racially motivated act of white supremacy and violent extremism. As they do, we must all work together to address the hate that remains a stain on the soul of America. The hearts are heavy once again, but a resolve must never ever waver. I want, I already said I'm not going to say this guy's name, but I would like to say the name of the people he killed because he shot 13 people, killing 10. One of them was 86-year-old Ruth Winfield. She was a grandma who was shopping at the grocery store. She had just visited her husband of 68 years who is in a nursing home and still doesn't know about her murder. She was 86 years old, and she never did nothing to this kid. Say her name, Ruth Whitfield. Pearl Young was a substitute teacher. She was 77 years old. Say her name. Hayward Patterson was 67 years old. He was a deacon in the church. He had a wife and a daughter. He loved singing in his church. Say his name, Hayward Patterson. Celestine Cheney was 65. She was a survivor of cancer. She had six grandchildren, one great-grandchild. She went shopping for groceries. And an 18-year-old who believed this right-wing bullshit murdered her. Say her name. Geraldine Talley, 62 years old. She was in the market with her fiancé. She was restarting her life at 62, getting married. Say her name. Aaron Salter was 55 years old. He was the former Buffalo cop. He died by gunshot while defending the lives of people there as a security guard. Say his name. Andre McNeil. 53 years old, picking up a cake for his three-year-old son. This guy had a child at 50, and he was going to pick up a cake for his kids. Say his name. Margus Morrison, 52. He worked with children. He had gone to the market to buy his family chicken for dinner. Say his name. Roberta Drury was 32 years old. She moved to Buffalo eight years ago, and she spent most of her time there helping her brother, who was being treated for leukemia. Say her name. Catherine Massey, also known as Cat, was a local activist. She wrote letters to the local newspaper. She wrote a lot of letters to the local newspaper. She wrote a lot of letters about stronger gun control laws. She wrote, there needs to be extensive federal action legislation to address all aspects of the issue. Current pursued remedies, mainly inspired by mass killings, universal background checks, and banning assault weapons, essentially exclude the sources of our city's gun problems. She was 72 years old. Say her name. Catherine Cat Massey. The suspect planned to continue his shooting rampage at another store, but he was confronted by police. He took off his tactical gear and he surrendered and he was white. So he was taken alive. He live streamed it on Twitch. The, uh, the company said they removed the live stream less than two minutes after the violence began. He had made a generalized threat, not racial, when he was going to high school last year. State police brought him in for a mental health evaluation after a day and a half. He was released. This 18-year-old white guy used a Bushmaster semi-automatic weapon because unlike beer, you can sell those to 18-year-olds. It is believed, according to Governor Hochul, that the high-capacity magazine was purchased outside of New York. He bought the ammo for a while but didn't get serious about planning the attack until January. And he bought the gun legally because he passed a background check. At age 18, Investor, investigators right now are going through the 180-page document that was posted online, and he describes himself again as a fascist, a white supremacist, an anti-Semite, and he writes about how he feels about the dwindling size of the white population and talked about the cultural replacement and ethnic replacement of whites. 
just like Tucker Carlson does. So believers of white replacement theory say the goal is being achieved through the immigration of non-white people into societies that have always been dominated by white people. You might say, because you're not stupid, this is just natural, right? I mean, Richard Pryor was doing material about who was fucking and who wasn't back in the 70s. But the racist members of this conspiracy theory believe Jews are behind it. Remember Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017? Let me remind you, these folks came out for Donald Trump. He said very fine people on both sides. And there was only one side that was there for the Unite the Right rally. And the most innocent of them were marching to defend memorials to white supremacists. Here it is. You will not replace us or Jews will not replace us before Charlottesville. Now, this watered down racist, stupid, the danger is catching on. An AP poll found that about one in three Americans really believe an effort is underway to replace U.S. born Americans with immigrants for electoral gain. And did I mention we have a lot of guns here in 2018? Right wing white guy guns down 11 worshipers in a Pittsburgh synagogue, blaming the Jews for allowing immigrant invaders into the U.S. 2019. Another right-wing white guy, angry over what he called the Hispanic invasion of Texas. Invasion was a word Trump used on the campaign trail. And in 2019, this guy opened fire on shoppers in an El Paso Walmart and killed 23 people. Told the police he was just trying to kill Mexicans. And the great replacement theory has now become a mainstream Republican talking point, while still radicalizing right-wing white guys to commit violence. And Republican leaders and pundits... Keep on promoting it for votes and profit and ratings. Elise Stefanik, Ron Johnson, Dan Patrick, Scott Perry, J.D. Vance, they've all used this disgusting ideology while trying to disguise it in racially neutral packaging. I can quote him. He said, you're talking about a shift in the demographic makeup of this country that would mean we never win. Republicans would never win a national election in this country ever again. He said that in Portsmouth last month. Elise Stefanik was saying in ads last fall that Democrats want to legalize undocumented immigrants in a, quote, permanent election insurrection. That's one of the tropes they use. He's number three in the House GOP leadership. Blake Masters, he's another winged monkey from Peter Thiel's PayPal castle. He's running for Senate in Arizona. He was on an interview with, uh, here we go. He's being interviewed by grotesque gnome Ben Shapiro. Up to 18,000 people a day may be descending on the border, which, of course, completely destroys That's whatever been. semblance of order there is on the border. There isn't much there right now. And so what do you make of the border situation? It's, I think it's literally criminal what Biden and the administration has done. You know, they swore to faithfully defend and uphold the laws of the United States. And then it's not even like they're trying. It's not like they're trying and failing, right? That would be bad enough. Mere incompetence would be costly enough. But they just want this open border. This is their policy program. From the Democrats' perspective, they like it. It's good. Uh, it's 225,000 people coming across every month, not every year, every month. The amount of fentanyl that comes over every month is enough to kill every American twice over. Of course, so, most of the people uh, brought over are trafficked by cartels. Okay, so, a, that's, human- so this guy, Blake Masters, used to work for Peter Thiel at PayPal. And, and he tweeted with this link you're hearing, the Democrats want open borders so they can bring in and amnesty tens of millions of illegal aliens. That's their electoral strategy. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. Number one, that's a racist lie. Number two, he tweeted this white replacement theory propaganda hours 
after the massacre in Buffalo. Number three, it was Ronald Reagan who promoted amnesty, not Democrats. Number four, not on my watch is tough talk for I'm running for office and I have a micro penis. And number five, amnesty is not a goddamn verb, Blake Masters. And number six, even if they brought these people in, they can't vote. It takes years to gain citizenship. And as we know, a lot of Latino folks who are coming in here lean conservative anyway. What does it mean when Liz Cheney is the most moral voice in the GOP? She tweeted, the House GOP leadership has enabled white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. History has taught us that what begins with words ends in far worse. GOP leaders must renounce and reject these views and those who hold them. So here's my point. You know how Democrats and Joe Biden are always asked about defunding the police, even though nobody in the DNC is really pushing it? Or critical race theory? That panic? Even though it only exists to stoke racial fears and anxiety, hey, racist idiots, critical race theory is only taught in grad school, which means it'll never be a threat to you. So here's my take. Leading up to the election this November, every journalist has to ask every Republican official and every Republican candidate these questions. Do you believe in the replacement theory? Do you condemn white replacement theory? Or do you support this ideology that's inspired these terrorists? If you do condemn white replacement theory, then why are you and your colleagues repeating it? You know, guys, I saw Tucker using his changing demographics to code talk a couple of years ago at Politicon down in Nashville. I love going to Politicon. I've always had a good time. I went to hear Tucker speak. And I said then when I heard him say changing demographics that he was being an inspiration to future violent replacement theory racists. But I was wrong. He wasn't being an inspiration. The correct word was groomer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. So let's just recap what happened over the weekend. In Orange County, California, a man opened fire during a lunch reception at Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church, killing one person. In Houston, two people were killed and three more taken to a hospital with injuries after a shooting in an open air flea market. In Chicago, they now have a curfew banning unaccompanied minors in Millennium Park after 6 p.m. after uh, a 16-year-old was shot dead on Saturday near the Bean Sculpture, which is one of the biggest tourist attractions in Chicago. This weekend in Milwaukee, um, a curfew was imposed and a big watch party for the Bucks game was canceled after 21 people were hurt in three shootings on Friday night. These are all the shootings this weekend that didn't happen in Buffalo, the frequency of mass shootings in the U.S. has tripled since 2011. And in 2019, there were more mass shootings than days in the calendar year. 
guns are used in 70% of homicides and more than 50% of suicides here in the U.S. And as we pointed out in the past, each gun death averages about $6 million in total costs. Each gun injury requiring hospitalization costs over half a million dollars. But what if we had a way to use behavioral threat analysis to focus on the often very glaring but overlooked behaviors and steps that lead up to acts of mass violence, and in doing so, prevent them. I'm so pleased to welcome Mark Fullman back to the show. He is a heroic journalist and the national affairs editor for Mother Jones. Ever since 2012, when he created a first-of-its-kind public database of mass shootings in the U.S., his many investigations of the gun violence have gotten numerous journalistic awards. You may have read his stuff in the New York Times, The Atlantic, on National Public Radio. His new book is the first to tell the story of specialized teams of forensic psychs, FBI agents, and other experts who are successfully stopping mass shootings. This book shows a new path with powerful potential to save lives. It is Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. It tells the inside story of the decades-long search for identifiable profiles and warning signs of mass shooters. And we booked Mark Fullman to come back weeks before we knew what was going to happen this weekend. Uh, Mr. Fullman, what a pleasure to welcome you back and to talk about your gripping and brilliant book. Thanks, John. It's good to be with you again, uh, despite the uh, very grim circumstances. Yeah, I, I want to ask, um, what were your thoughts when you heard about what happened this weekend? Uh, you write about it so much, and we were so looking forward to having you back, and especially because this is someone who was um, flagged as a potential danger in his high school and taken by police for evaluation overnight and then sent back. Uh, what went through your mind when you heard about this atrocious crime? Yeah, I think like so many other people, you know, the initial news breaking, it's the feeling of here we go again. It just keeps happening over and over. Um, you know, it almost feels like we can't catch our breath, right? Um, and there has been an escalation in this problem in recent years. And I think even in, in the last couple of years in particular, the it's, you know, it's tr tricky to, to measure frequency of mass shootings because there's sort of different ways of defining the problem. But I think any way you slice it, we have a, a really bad problem going on in this country with mass gun violence in general. And with these types of attacks in particular, um, you know, we've seen a rise in the kinds of circumstances and turmoil and warning signs that, are, are leading to these types of attacks that are in particular fueled by violent extremist ideology. And that's very troubling to see. So as soon as the facts started to come out around this case within hours, it was just really horrific and, and upsetting to see that here, you know, we were going to experience another event like this. I mean, you've talked about all the disaffected young males who just live online that you have studied and how they'll go into these communities on 4chan or 8chan and, and find all of this uh, grotesque content. I mean, you are not unfamiliar with the term great replacement theory and these other conspiracy theories. Yeah. So this is a, a factor that has been growing within the, the pretty broad continuum of, of warning behaviors that threat assessment experts look at to try to, uh, you know, forecast who may be turning dangerous and then to step in and intervene, which is the, the focus of the work. And you know it's it's a it's a method that has evolved over time, and what has happened in the in the social media space has really is really significant um, with a lot of this kind of 
you know, extremist um, content that's available to individuals who may be vulnerable to radicalization. And we can already see from this case with this buff alleged Buffalo perpetrator uh, that this was the experience that he's had. Uh, you know, we're still going to learn a lot more about what happened. And I, I suspect from studying these cases for a long time that we will learn about a lot more warning signs that preceded this attack. But he himself has already told us through his own documentation uh, that authorities say he posted online this long document ahead of his attack that he himself describes he was radicalized online over a period of many months going into these rabbit holes of very dark and disturbing extremist content. You know, I, I wanted to ask you about something in the book I didn't get to bring up last time. And you, you write about this at length in Trigger Points. And it's something I think we need to talk about, which is that that these mass shooters don't just suddenly snap, that these crimes we speak of are hardly ever impulsive acts. And I'm curious, what are some of the biggest myths about mass shootings? Yeah, well, you're hitting on one of them. Uh, the idea that these attacks come out of nowhere, that the people who do them are totally insane and just snap, quote unquote. That, that question is so often asked in the aftermath, what made the guy snap? As if this is an impulsive crime, but it's not. That's just flat out wrong. Every single one of these cases, if you study them, there is a long process leading up to the attack where a person is developing a violent idea, planning, preparing, going out and getting ready. You know, we already know that this alleged perpetrator spent a long time surveilling his targets hundreds of miles away from where he lived. That's right. Uh, so the notion that these come out of nowhere and that no one can see them coming is a very unhelpful myth that we see repeated over and over in news coverage and in public discussion. You can see it even now in, in some of the news stories that are coming out today where journalists go and interview people around the offender who knew the offender. And they'll say things like, oh, I just can't believe this. Like nobody could have seen this coming. He was just this quiet, nice guy. Or, or maybe sometimes, yeah, he was a little bit odd. But we never would have expected this from him. And that belies the truth of these cases, which is that there's often an array of troubling behavior and warning signs that are often detectable to people around these, these offenders. This was an 18-year-old guy who made a generalized threat while attending a high school in June of, of last year. Um, not racial, but a generalized threat about violence. And the state police brought him in for a mental health evaluation. They kept him for a day and a half, and he was released. Um, he was able to buy a high-capacity magazine and, and buy ammunition for a long time. He was sold this uh, Bushmaster semi-automatic rifle because he passed a background check. He didn't stand out, wasn't flagged for any reason. Spent a lot of time online in these charming chat rooms that you document so well. I mean, it seems like in many ways the signs were there. Is it a question of the resources of the society not being there to keep an eye out for a red flag like this young man? Well, I think that's part of what's a question here. There's also the question of, of awareness and understanding of what these warning signs may be. Because look, you know, we have freedom of speech in this country and people can go on any website they want and say whatever they want. That's not a crime, right? Uh, but let's look at the nature of the threat that brought raised real concerns about him. Yes, it was generalized in the sense that he didn't specify who he would target, as he then later went on to do with the Black community in Buffalo. But he did specify that he was interested in committing a murder-suicide at the school. That is right. a very specific kind of 
um, violent ideation. And as I reported today in my piece from Mother Jones, this is very common among school shooters. He then said when confronted about it or asked about it, we don't know exactly the contours of what happened there. Um, he claimed he was just joking. This happens in a lot of school shooting cases. I documented in trigger points. Uh, we had a case like this just recently in Michigan, the Oxford High Massacre. Same exact behavior. That per alleged perpetrator, months before the shooting, told a, a texted a friend that he was thinking about shooting up the school and then said he was joking. So this happens over and over again. And, and I think to your question, it's a matter of better cultural understanding and awareness of what the nature of this problem really is and then putting in places, in place the resources to deal with it, which is, I argue in the book, having more of threat assessment programs and threat assessment teams that have the collaborative expertise in mental health, in law enforcement, in education, in workplace personnel, depending on your setting, working together to evaluate people of concern who are raising fear and anxiety and then creating a plan to intervene constructively and to manage the situation. A case like this, you can look at and see how once upon a time that may have been possible long before this young man went down this really dark road and developed his plans and armed himself and started you know, going and surveilling his target. There are ways to get in, in the way of that, to stop it, to disrupt it. And that's what this, this method is all about. Um, my guest is Mark Fullman, author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, an essential read. And you have a great piece in the current issue of Mother Jones called uh, Violent Far-Right Extremism is Fueling, Ma is Fueling Mass Shootings in America. Um, and let me just quote you, threat assessment leaders typically are stoic in the face of tumultuous current affairs. But after an intense 2020 election year battered by a politicized pandemic, several top experts I spoke with described feeling deeply unsettled by the way dehumanization and themes of existential social war have become normalized in American politics. That sentence really stopped me cold, not just because it's well written. What, what has surprised you the most and what has surprised the behavioral experts the most? Well, yeah, that, that was a, an area of inquiry for me in, in the last couple of years of reporting the book because we were watching these problems escalate or those of us who were paying attention to them. And I was reporting on this a lot from Mother Jones, how um, political extremism was turning violent and that there were more attacks of this nature going on. We've had several mass shootings in, in recent years that are of this kind, targeting synagogues, targeting Latinos in, in Texas. Um, and so this was really troubling. And, and I guess I was I was surprised and yet not surprised when I began to ask leaders in, in threat assessment about this, because they are typically very kind of reserved and stoic about the work that they do. Um, but hearing that kind of alarm from some people who are normally very um, kind of cool as cucumbers, right, about this kind of stuff, because this is their their life's work. Um, saying that, you know, they were deeply concerned about what was happening in American society and the level of threat that that was creating and, and the possibility for future violence. And unfortunately, I think now we are living through more of it in exactly the ways that they described. Um, let me ask why you don't focus on gun regulation or on background checks. Yeah, so it, it's a great question. For me, it's really in some ways the genesis of the book of Trigger Points. Yeah. I, I had spent years investigating mass shootings um, and, and gun violence more broadly and the battle in our country over gun policy and laws, the politics of it, the NRA, all of it. 
um, I felt at a certain point long ago, the frustration that many people feel about this, this kind of stalemate that we, we live with. Um, but it, for me, it also really sparked a, a key question. What else is there? What else can we do about this? This can't be the only way at this problem. And as I was you know, pondering that, I began to hear about this method, which was very little known a decade ago when I really started focusing on this. And yet it's been going on for, for 40 years. So I thought right there that I was fascinated. You know, th there were these um, claims that, that hundreds of mass shootings were being stopped. And I wanted to know what that was all about. So that really led me down this road. And I also saw it as a real opportunity to get beyond the deeply stuck gun debate that this right. was an additional approach to the problem. It doesn't, it's not mutually exclusive. The, the, the battle over gun policy is very important in our society. I think that's self-evident, right? Why? Um, and it will go on, but it, we all know how, how difficult it is to make progress in terms of the national picture with that issue. Yeah, so sure. this was yeah. a whole other way at it. Well, that's why I find this emerging field so fascinating. I mean, take the, the subway shooter in Brooklyn, which we our last caller was, was bringing up. I mean, okay. this was a, a person who was obviously planning this attack over a period of time. He had accessorized himself with this right kind of gear and the outfit. He had, he had smoke grenades he used and then opened fire. He had a long criminal history, was still able to purchase a gun legally, um, and a lot of online content with a lot of hatred, a lot of anger, a lot of promises of violence. So uh, how does the culture detect that? I mean, you know, there are often people around a, a man like this who will call the authorities, but when, when the signs are there, is, is it just a question that we need to take this field more seriously? Because I do believe more <laughs> having the right kind of algorithms on our side could have caught this guy. What, what did you feel when you learned about the, the Brooklyn atrocity? Yeah, well, it's. I think it's similar in some ways to what we just saw in Buffalo in terms of the challenges here, because in both cases you're talking about people who are more kind of out in the world. Maybe less so in the public in the Buffalo case because the kid had just or the young man had just finished high school, but he was no longer in the school, and that's the point here. The school was where it had been noticed that there was concerning behavior. Now we don't know really anything about the family yet, and I'm sure that that picture is going to be interesting to see as it often is in these cases. The subway shooter is an even more difficult situation because from what we know about him through reporting so far, he was just kind of living an isolated life out in the world. There may have been some workplace connection where there would have been opportunity to see what was happening with him. Right. Um, and you can't really do this work through broad-based surveillance. You know, that just runs into problems with civil liberties and free speech, and it's ineffective. It, it, we don't have the resources to just, you know, watch everything that happens online in the digital age. That's just not a, a plausible approach. So what this work does is really um, leverage community-based work, community-based yes. leadership and expertise and bringing together people to evaluate specific situations of concern. And in most of these cases, there are signs of that. They're noticeable. And if people know to reach out for help and know where to turn and can trust that there will be a fair and effective process, I think there's enormous potential for this to be an additional solution to the problem. You know, gun laws are an important part of this picture too, but we know yeah. where that leads in a lot of cases. And you can look at the Buffalo case. You know, there's a big story out in the Times today about why was there no use of the red flag law in New York to take his guns away after he'd had yes. a mental health evaluation. Yes. We don't know the answer there, but clearly that policy wasn't effective in this case. 
I love how your book really talks about how this whole field of behavioral threat assessment grew out of Secret Service investigations and, and serial, killer, serial killer hunting by, by the FBI, and how this whole approach of early intervention with a less outwardly harsh response can stop, say, disgruntled employees from killing their coworkers, for example. But let, let me ask you about one more specific case um, sure. where I think these methodologies apply, and that is the Oxford High School Massacre. When uh, this young man, Ethan Crumbly, opened fire, killed four students and injured many others, and his parents are also being held accountable for this. Um, In many ways, I think that's a a good example of a mass shooting that could have been prevented, the trail of warning signs, the number of people who had a sense that he might commit a violent act. Yes, and that's a particularly stark example as a case study of this problem, because uh, there were numerous people who were very worried about that young man. Um, the the issue with the family was very complicated because the parents, to a degree, appeared to be in denial or perhaps even enabling him to an ex- extreme degree. I mean, I've looked yes. at a lot of cases, and this one is pretty unique in that regard. Uh, that's going to be adjudicated now through a criminal process, whether or not they're responsible criminally for that. That would be unprecedented. We've never seen a case like this before. Um, that being said, there was still a lot, I think, that in that case that the school could have done, um, missed and mishandled warning signs. So, you know, you can see how this work is, is just highly applicable in, a, in an education setting, which is highly structured. But you mentioned, you know, some of the earlier history in the book. I think it's actually really fascinating to see how this, this applies, this idea of early intervention, even the most like sort of hardened or crazy psychotic criminals we can imagine. This is originally... So? a method pioneered by studying assassins and the mental health experts who went down this road came to the same conclusions that none of this is inevitable that most violence of this predatory nature is preventable if you can do effective early intervention well it certainly seems like at a time of political extremism that's fueling you know violent grievances and despair in troubled people who put a lot of their thoughts online would be a really great way for a responsible society to prevent a lot of suffering. What was it that first made you aware as a journalist of this field of behavioral threat assessment? I, I had actually read a, uh, there was an Associated Press story, kind of, uh, you know, not, not a big story that I just noticed as in my work of reporting on and researching mass shootings that mentioned a, uh, a conference in 2013 where the attorney general at the time, Eric Holder, was speaking to the nation's police chiefs. And he mentioned this unit at the FBI, at the Behavioral Analysis Unit, and, and said to the police chiefs they had stopped more than 100 mass shootings in 2013. This was the year after Sandy Hook. And what I came to learn later, I mean, that, tur- that really turned my head. What is that all about? How are they stopping mass shootings? So that was my first sort of window into this world of work, um, which, as I said, you know, this was created in the 1980s and has been developing for decades, but the public generally has known nothing about it. And so I started looking into it. I, I In hindsight, I think that the Justice Department and the FBI was realizing already at that point that better public awareness of this work was important. And, and that's for a very fundamental reason. Most threat cases begin when an ordinary person raises their hand and speaks out and says, I'm worried. We need help. This person yeah. is acting in ways that are scaring me. Or I don't even know what's going on here, but it's wrong, right? Many, many cases start that way, including many successful cases that I document and trigger points that the public doesn't know about because they were handled well and nothing happened in terms of violent outcome. That's not news, right? 
So, you know, I think even then the people who were leaders in this field were starting to understand the public needs to know more about this. It was starting to bubble up a little bit in a news story. And I found out about it and just saw pretty quickly, this is deep, rich, important territory, and I want to know more about it. And, and thus began the, the long journey of, of writing this book. Well, that's why I find the book to be so hopeful. And it's, as I said, the last time you joined us, sir, it's very rare to have a book on mass shootings that makes me feel that way, because I don't have to tell you, you've researched this so deeply. I mean, we see these mass shootings going on and on for decades now, multiple shootings every week. And I mean, do you have any idea what it is in our society that just that just lets it keep happening? I mean, it just seems like as a nation, we have become grimly resigned to this, the way we're becoming grimly resigned to the fact that we're all going to have our identity stolen once in our life. I mean, is it is it just the gun lobby? Is it just politicians being bought off? Or in your research, do you find something deeper culturally that makes us as a society just not able to do something about this violence where other societies have? It, it is such a big question, right? And, and I know it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm well, asking you to be a philosopher. But it's, but it's a vital one. And I think a lot of people wonder about this. And I have for years. Um, it's. I think it's hard to answer. There are a lot of forces playing into it, cultural, political, systemic. All that being said, you touched on something that I think is really important that I've come to think about a lot more explicitly um, as I was finishing the book and in recent time. The idea that we are so resigned to this problem, I think, is actually part of the problem. It's, it's um, you know, the idea that we can't really do anything about this. We're going to be forever stuck in this battle over gun policy. We're in an inherently violent society. All of these sort of thematic notions we have that we are stuck with this. I think that's wrong. And not only is it wrong, it validates the idea of this violence in some ways. If you think about the, the case evidence of the people who do this crime, they're looking for ways to justify what they're doing, to um, you know, explain their rage and despair to themselves, to the world. Yeah. And this is part of how they do it. I live in the United States. I can go out and commit a mass shooting. Other people do it. I want to be like them. There's so much of that emulation behavior and notoriety seeking. And so all of these threads kind of come together around that too. And I think that's really important. I think it's especially important in a time like this where we just saw such a dark event just, you know, hateful, terrible, abhorrent behavior, targeting people out of racial animus, um, to realize that we can do better as a nation and we have to. And it's, it's all the above. We can do it through gun policy. We can do it by battling political extremism, and we can do it by building greater action in communities through prevention work, through this method of threat assessment and other forms of community-based violence prevention. So I think, you know, I do have a note of optimism in, in this work that I do. I think it's frankly the only way I could do it. It's, it's very yeah. dark and daunting, um, but I am optimistic in some ways that we can make progress. I think that's why it's such an important book. Once again, the book is Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. The author is Mark Fullman. I'm a huge fan of your stuff and Mother Jones as well. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you, Mr. Fullman, and keep up with your stuff? Yeah, thanks, John. So uh, on Mother Jones, of course, I'm most active on Twitter in terms of social media. I'm at Mark Fullman. Um, you can Google the book, Trigger Points, Mark Fullman, Mass Shootings. Any of that will get you to the book. Um, it's been in the New York Times on Fresh Air. It's been around lately. So please get a copy and read it. I hope it compels people to think differently about this problem. There's more we can do as a nation to fix it. It's a pleasure to have you back. Please come see us again. I will, John. Thanks. Thank you. We'll be right back with your calls 
This is progress. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Well, we have a lot of callers who want to weigh in on this. You want to talk to some of the riffraff, Miss Hanson? I got to talk to the riffraff. That's Love my life's blood. <laughs> Thank you. Tempe is calling from the, my mom's home state of Virginia. Tempe, welcome. You're on Sirius XM. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. And thank you so much for everything that you do do. And I wrote things down because I know that radio, you have a time clock and you kind of have to keep going. But <laughs> oh, I, I love you. I appreciate you calling. <laughs> thank I, you. I, I just appreciate you doing that. Thank um, you. One thing I want to say is that I moved here from Florida. I was born in West Virginia, grew up the child of a musician and literally traveled the whole United States like an army brat um, and ended up in Florida. Now I am in Virginia for approximately 15 years. I have never seen anything like it as far as, and I've never seen the, the Broadway shows and all of that stuff, but I wanted you to get a different perspective. Please. This place, this taste this place breeds evil. What it, part of Virginia? It, what part it, of Virginia are you from? I have a lot of family in Virginia. Where are you at? I'm in the southwest region okay. of Virginia. Oh, Blue Ridge Blue Mountains Ridge area. Mountain. Yeah, that's where my mom was born. Mm-hmm. That's where my mom escaped. Go ahead. I really, I really would give anything to know, and I, I ask you and any of your staff that can tell me or in, enlighten me. Um, would it? I feel in danger every day of my life in this place. I have a simple bumper sticker on my car that says, actually, I had two. I took one off because it pissed people off to the effect that I had a little old lady in a store that was in a little motorized uh, cart come up to me. And she said, um, because I had a T-shirt made, too. And the T-shirt, well, she came up to me and she said, "Um, honey, and she's laughing. And she said, can you run? What was well, the bumper what did sticker? Your what shirt did it say? say? What What did the shirt and the bumper sticker the t-shirt, say? The T-shirt said, "Newsflash: He's never going to make America white again." Ooh. And I put that in white, and then I put at I put it I put at the bottom. I said, Psst, "It never was." 
with a smiley face. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All that has to do is make somebody uncomfortable. The bumper sticker I have on the back of my car says, racism divides. This is the United States. And well, I've you like living on the edge, America. don't you? I don't think that's that controversial. It's if you not, know. Actually, Go ahead. In Virginia, it is. It, yeah, in this part, it certainly is. But I know I have children that are in South Florida. I have children that are in South Carolina. I have children that are in the East Coast of Virginia. And I have children that are right here in this town. And seeing the full spectrum of what I can't fathom we are at a point of reckoning in this country and it's not just in one thing it's in so many fucking things coming together at one time and i know that we've had suffragists and i know that we've had i know we've had so many chapters of so much ugly shit in this quote-unquote experiment but we are having a catalyst of things that yeah. when I go to the store and they're proudly waving rebel flags and my oh, roots are from Mobile, Alabama, I fucking want to give them the middle finger. And I, I swear to God, I, it, 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 the only positive, which I will always take a positive from any negative you can ever throw down my throat, but this at least brought the cockroaches to the surface. Yeah. Because I never knew I had it in my family. And I never have been so, and I, I'm so glad to say this to your guests, because I feel it with so much of my heart, and I know there's so many people out there that feel this too. I'm so not wanting to be embarrassed to be white. I know, <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. But, but you're not. I mean... You're doing the Lord's work. You, you're fighting this stuff. You're not just indifferent. You know, there's non-racist and there's anti-racist. And there's a lot of white folks, <laughs> white people I grew up loving, who they weren't racist, and that meant they were good. But we've learned that's not enough. White people have to no. be anti-racist and raise anti-racist children. Rhonda, do you want to you want to jump yeah, in because I learned. I feel for her. I've I've grown. Uh, I've we, lived my life in just, places where I just, felt very uncomfortable. Learned. We also learned that we didn't know we had it in our families. Yeah, oh, I know. Fuck. I know. That's hard. But ahead, so Rhonda. many people I'm who so uh, can can very believably say I'm not racist have no idea or no concept of the fact of the privilege that they have with the complexion. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, I understand. And many and, times and, it's like, no, you're not a bigot. But you can still be racist. You can have no hatred in your heart and you can still be part of the problem. I'm sorry, Rhonda, go ahead. Well, it's it's the thing that you are able to enjoy the privileges and the perks of the situation without yep. ever th- thinking about how gatekeepers make things work for you or how even yeah. if they're not making them work for you, they they keep black people out. That it, It's that situation so much that it is in every single area of our lives. Tempe, I, I, I got to run, yeah. but I hope you'll call more often. I really enjoy oh, your call. Oh, thank and I, you. You got a place here anytime. Please, please don't be Stay shy. Stay strong, Tempe. Tempe.